This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be with you again this week. If you were not here last week, my name is Michael Rhodes, and I bring you greetings from your sister church, Downtown Church, uh, where I am one of the teaching elders. And if you were here last week, you've noticed that I have come with more children this time. That's a good sign that you're such a welcoming and hospitable place that I had the courage to bring two more children. So I've got Isaiah with Ames down here, and then my daughter Nova is in the kids' area. I'm not sure the world or Woodland is ready for my four-year-old. So we'll see if all four make it next week. I kind of doubt it. Um, I, uh, in addition, I'm, I'm a volunteer pastor at Downtown Church. My full-time job is teaching Old Testament at a school in New Zealand. Uh, after teaching uh, community development and mission here at the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies, which some of you will know, and I'm a child of your sister church, Second Pres. So it is really fun to be here again. Um, I have always loved good stories, like a lot, especially of the like. Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter variety. Like, that is my jam. I love that stuff. I've always loved them. And I acquired that love first when my dad would read me these chapter books uh, at night before we went to bed, which I now do with my kids. Uh, but I had then, and I have now, and my kids have inherited a love-hate relationship with one feature of these stories, and that's the cliffhanger. Right? I can remember vividly in elementary school, the these happy, warm moments where dad's reading me, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, turning into shouting matches when I realized that the chapter was going to end on a cliffhanger. I hated that. I yelled at my dad then. My kids yell at me now. It's so hard when you get to the point in the story where you don't know what's going to happen and you have to go to bed. Well, last week we talked about, we began our study on Jonah with chapter 1 and 2. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, go take this message of judgment to your enemies. And Jonah says, no! <laughs> and he runs away, and God does that whole business with the storm and the fish. And so when we come to chapter 3, we're finally back on track. God's prophet is finally taking God's word to the people that God wants it to go to. But we hit, in chapter 3, one of the greatest cliffhangers as far as I'm concerned, in the Old Testament. A moment where we and the Ninevites and Jonah all hold our breath and wonder what is going to happen next. So let's uh, read Jonah chapter 3 together and then consider what it might mean for us today. So I invite you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Including you guys. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That's our story this morning that includes our cliffhanger. What might it mean for us today? What might it be speaking to us this morning? I want to suggest three things and then unpack how we might hear them today. And the first thing that this story does is it shows us that the Lord confronts injustice and sin and calls his people to do the same. The Lord shows us, the story shows us, a God who confronts injustice and sin and calls his people to do the same. The thing that has driven the story forward from the very second verse is this idea that the wickedness of Nineveh had arisen up to God, and God is going to confront it. What kind of wickedness? We talked about this some last week, that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and the Assyrians were like the Nazis of the ancient world. World. They were like the ISIS, like the Taliban of the ancient world. They were the worst of the worst. The Babylonians were bad. The Persians were bad. The Canaanites were bad. The Assyrians were the worst. I told you last week, and my son got a kick out of this, so I'll say it again. We have dug up walls in Nineveh that show pictures they drew of themselves in which the kings are holding a feast with the head of an enemy king hanging from a tree. We've dug up texts where they brag about themselves doing things so terrible to their enemies that I will not say them out loud from this pulpit. These guys were terrible. But it wasn't just outward political w- w- uh, wickedness to their enemies. It was also injustice and sin inside, within the community. That's why Nahum calls Nineveh a city of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence, where killing never stops. That's the kind of place Nineveh was. And this sin, this injustice, which in the Bible, injustice is just about the wrongful exercise of power by anyone. This sin and this injustice wasn't just an individual thing. It didn't just belong to a few people. No, this was pervasive. That's why it's kind of funny, actually. I I think Jonah's kind of a funny book in a lot of ways. It wants us to chuckle. Because when Jonah says, he just walks on the scene, right? They worship different gods. They don't know him from Adam. He walks on the scene. He's like, 40 days, this city's going to be overthrown. And nobody says, over what? Nobody says, like, wait, why? Everyone's like, yep, that sounds about right. We probably had it coming. Like, when it gets to the king, he doesn't say, ooh, a few of us should. No, he says, every single person, even the animals, needs to stop it. And you know what I'm talking about stopping, right? It's clear. It's obvious. Every single person, if we take the king's command seriously, has something to repent over. <laughs> 
has a wicked way to turn from, has violence in their hands. And this violence, again, we've, we've already seen it's, it's pervasive, but it's not just physical, it's not just political, it's also social and economic and even systemic. We can see this in a few ways. The one is this other humorous reference to these animals. Why does God call the animals to repent? Why does the king say the animals need to put on sackcloth, besides giving us a little bit of a laugh in this story? Well, I think it's because animals are deeply intertwined with the economic and social system in Nineveh. They're part of the economy. They're part of society. This is judgment not just on individuals. This is judgment on the entire whole shebang, right? And even the language of violence is rather comprehensive. That language of violence, if you look at where that word shows up throughout the Old Testament, it shows up, for instance, as the violence that so fills the earth that God sends the flood, But it also is violence elsewhere in the Old Testament, including a witness who doesn't tell the truth in court. Legal violence. The same word for violence is used in the Psalms to describe a city that has iniquity, trouble, and oppression in the marketplace. Economic violence. Ezekiel associates this language of violence with kings and higher-ups who steal land from the everyday people. So this language of violence isn't just about some individuals in back alleys banging people on the head for their wallets. The picture is of a pervasive structural injustice that everyone is involved in. Everyone is misusing what they have, the power and influence that they have for their own benefit against their neighbors. That's what the wickedness is like. That's the wickedness that God confronts. And in a story dominated by forgiveness... It's really important that we don't miss just how close these people come to getting wiped off the map because of their injustice and sin. Don't miss that the Ninevites almost join Sodom and Gomorrah and later Israel and Judah as those communities that get overthrown because of their injustice and sin. And a story dominated by forgiveness, don't miss the God who confronts injustice and sin and calls Jonah to do the same. Now, why? Why is God so worked up about this injustice and sin? What's the big deal? Well, if we look at the Bible elsewhere, we get a bunch of good reasons. Like, for instance, the Psalms repeatedly tell us What's the big deal about injustice? I'll tell you what the big deal is. The Psalms repeatedly tell us that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. God loves righteousness and justice. In fact, righteousness and justice, the psalmist says, are the foundation of God's throne. In other words, they are the way that God rules himself. And because they're they're like at the top of God's resume, or if you're a bit younger, they're like on his Instagram bio, right? Righteousness and justice. That's what he's about. That's why injustice is so big. But more than that, because they're at the top of God's resume or Instagram bio, God also tells his people again and again, justice and righteousness are to be the top of our resumes. Think about the prophet Micah. What has the Lord required of you, O human being? But that you do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Think about Isaiah 5, describing his people as a vineyard that God had planted. Why? To get fruit. What kind of fruit, you ask? For the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he came looking for justice, 
and righteousness. Why is God so angry at Nineveh's injustice? Because he loves justice and he's given justice and righteousness to humans as their work. And so God is so obsessed with justice and righteousness. The psalmist even goes so far as to say, in words that should haunt us, the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Nineveh has a near miss because they are caught up in relentless sin and wickedness and violence and oppression and the Lord hates it. He hates what it does to those it harms and he hates what it does to those who wield it. And he will not let it go unchecked forever. And this (laughs) is pretty much the only thing Jonah you remember from last week, competing for the title of world's worst missionary. This is the only thing in the whole story that Jonah gets right, basically. That God hates injustice. And so when God sends a prophet, part of their work is to confront the injustice that God hates. The the story confronts us with a God who hates wickedness, who will not let injustice go on forever, but confronts himself and calls his people to do the same. But secondly, and remarkably, The story shows us that the Lord's confrontation with injustice is designed to lead to repentance. The Lord's confrontation with injustice is designed to lead to repentance. I told you some of my own bad missionary stories last week, and then I told Jonah's bad missionary story, and this chapter 3 really bothers me, because Jonah waltzes in, and he gives like the world's worst sermon ever. It's like five words, right? Like 40 days, and it's overthrown. He doesn't tell them about God. He doesn't give them any reason. He doesn't give them any way out. It takes three days to get through Nineveh. On the first day, he gives this terrible sermon. And by the end of day one, every single person, from the king all the way down to the cows, is repenting in dust and ashes. It's the worst sermon in scripture, and it has the greatest impact. I'm not even sure Jesus preached a sermon this effective. Okay, I probably should have thought before I said that. Because Jesus accomplishes everything he wants to. But just based by the numbers, this is an entire city, right? This terrible, I mean, it's it's comical, right? I mean, I imagine like a a, a mom, you know, having one of those moments where they're mad at their kids, but they don't know what to do. They say, go to your room while I figure out what to do with you. And then they come to the room, and the daughter's like down on her knees praying, and so is the gerbil and the cat. This is weird. Why are the animals covered in sacrifice? Why are they repenting, you know? We've seen animals already in this story, but when when the fish shows up, it takes Jonah three days in the fish to get to repentance. In Nineveh, the Nazis of the ancient world, it takes them less than 24 hours. And even the cows are down on bended knee, repenting. It's comical, it's amusing, but it's also drawn in this large, startling way to show us this is the point of God's announcement of judgment. God announces judgment to lead us to repentance. Right? In fact, think about, this is a dynamic all throughout the prophets. When Jonah says, 40 days and I'll overthrow you, it sounds like there's no way out. It sounds like that's a straightforward prediction. But if you read the prophets carefully, you find out God predicts judgment precisely to elicit repentance. This announcement of judgment is designed for them to repent. And they give us, these Ninevites, the Isis of the ancient world, give us a master class in what repentance looks like particularly when it's society-wide. 
This master class from Repentance shows us two sides of it. On the one hand, there's this public acknowledgement of wrong. Right? They, they acknowledge their wrong. How? Sackcloth, ashes. The king says, we've done wrong. We've got violence in our hands. We need to put it down. And he calls the people to call out mightily to their God. That's a crucial part of repentance, that we name what we've done often publicly and that we call out to God for forgiveness. But the Ninevites know, remarkably, that that's only half of the story. The other half is they have to actually turn from their wicked ways. They have to turn from the violence and injustice that's in their hands back towards a way of life that honors God. In fact, the word repentance in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, just means to turn around. Do you remember when the sailors are in the sea and they're really worried about the storm and they try to go back to dry land? The word there is repent. Why? Because in the Bible, to repent is to acknowledge you're on a path that leads to direction, destruction, and to turn 180 degrees and take the path away from injustice and wickedness and sin towards the God who loves justice and righteousness. It's a master class in repentance, but interestingly, we wonder in 3.9, and the Ninevites wonder if it's going to be enough. Now, we're good biblical people. We know this story. So you may have missed that this is a cliffhanger. But remember, these are Israel's worst enemy. They have been oppressing Israel and the ancient world relentlessly for a long time. God has finally decided to smite them within 40 days, and they start confessing things. Is that really going to be enough? Is that really going to be enough? Notice that the king of Nineveh knows that they need to repent. He knows what they need to repent of. But he doesn't know if it will be enough. In this book of Jonah, the primary thing that we are encountering is the character of God. And the Ninevites don't know it. And so the king says, we're going to repent. We're going to put on sackcloth. And we're going to do everything we need to do. We're going to turn for the violence that is in our hands. But the most he can say is, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, perhaps, God won't bring the judgment that we deserve. That's the cliffhanger. That's where all the Ninevites, even their animals, and Jonah and we should be on the edge of our seat, wondering, is it enough? Will God really forgive even the Ninevites? And the third thing our story shows us dramatically is that the answer is yes. God will forgive the Ninevites because our just God delights in forgiving the most unjust people. The Lord who loves justice and righteousness, who has it as the foundation of, of his throne, who still hates injustice, nevertheless, Jonah holds in our face, delights to forgive even the most wicked, even the most violent, even the most unjust. God sees 310, their repentance, their lamenting. He hears their cries. He sees their turn. And so he himself turns from the judgment he had intended, and he does not do it. Why? Because, as one commentator, Leslie Allen, puts it, 
Justice is better served by reformed characters than by corpses. And ultimately, God's deepest intent is thus achieved. For, to quote the Apostle Peter, he does not want any to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. This, brothers and sisters, is the God that Jonah chapter 3 holds up before us. A God who confronts injustice and violence and sin, calls his people to do the same. A God whose confrontation with our injustice is intended to lead to repentance. And a God who delights to forgive even the most unjust, if they will but repent. What might that mean for us today? Well, first, when we look at this story of a God who confronts injustice and sin and calls his people to do the same, we're forced to ask ourselves, where is Ninevite-like injustice in our world that needs to be confronted? And where is Ninevite-like injustice in our lives of which we must repent? In other words, the near miss here, a God who is confronting injustice in the most difficult way, by declaring the overthrow of an entire community, forces us to ask, where is that kind of injustice in our lives and in our world? And what does it mean to be a people who confront the injustice out there and repent of the injustice in here? Now, of course, there's a million things we could talk about, right? We could talk about uh, 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 sex trafficking. We could talk about abortion on demand. There's a million ways that we see Ninevite-like injustice in our own society before we even move to like a geopolitical level. So I have to pick one to talk about, and the one I want to pick about is the one that's closest to my heart. As a child of this city, a majority African-American city with some of the worst history of racism in our country, not only as a child of this city, but as a child of a church and a denomination of which you are also related, that I love and that taught me to love Jesus and taught me to love this Jesus and called me to follow him wherever he led me to go, but which deeply failed, deeply failed to confront the racism in their lives and in the world. And I want to suggest to you that if we look at just one issue, the issue of black-white racism in our society today, we discover that there is injustice out there that needs to be confronted and in here that needs to be repented of. And of course we know, we know that that racist injustice sometimes takes the form of people who are openly hostile to folks of other races. We know that that's out there. We also know it's probably on decline. But what's not nearly as obvious is the way that racism, like injustice in Nineveh, lurks not only in our hearts, but in our systems, in our culture, in our structures. That it is not just personal but it is also corporate. If you don't believe me, just listen to a few statistics from the social scientists. In a study that's been repeated many times, the exact same resume sent out to thousands of employers that has the name Brendan on it, typically white name, gets about twice as many callbacks as that exact same resume if it's got Jamal at the top of it, typically black name. In one study, African-American applicants with no criminal record were offered jobs at the same rate as whites without a criminal record. White state legislators in both political parties have been demonstrated to respond less to emails and phone calls from people with African-American names, and all white juries are 16% more likely to convict black defendants than white ones. And the people who have done these studies have argued 
that the racism on display in them is not primarily the, the personal hatred towards people uh, with a different skin color, but the way that our long history of racism in this country has gotten into the gears of our society. It has infected the way that we do things. And so it shows up again and again. And I want to suggest to you, brothers, that that, that kind of injustice that kind of historic injustice, that kind of injustice and sin, past and present, demands no less than Nineveh's injustice and sin, us to confront it when we encounter it out there and to look for it in here and to repent of it. We can spend a lifetime working that out, but we can't deny that it's part of the task that Jonah 3 puts before us. Because when we participate in injustice and wrongdoing of any kind, We not only fail to confront that which God hates, we also fail to be the people he's called us to be. The people who have been entrusted with that prophetic incitement. He has told you, oh man, what is good? What is required of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God? So the story holds up a mirror for us to seek out Ninevite-like injustice of all sorts out there to be confronted and in here, of which we must repent. But secondly, the story of Jonah asks us, forces us to us, forces us to ask, who are the people who we think are so wicked and unjust that they've outrun the possibility of God's forgiveness? Like, let's look at the question from the other side. Not where is the Ninevite-like injustice that we need to confront or of which we need to repent. Who are the Ninevites who we think are beyond the hope of God's grace and mercy? This will be different for every one of us. And some of you will be thinking, I don't know any Ninevites. But I bet that in your life, like there is in my life, that there are individuals and groups and maybe people who show up on the news every once in a while There are segments of society that when you encounter them, they make your blood pressure go up. Now, if you don't have anybody who does that to you, you're more Christ-like than me, you are dismissed, right? But if you're like me, there are people out there, individuals and groups, who make my blood boil. And I think, if there's anybody who deserves smiting, it's them, right? And so the story of Ninevites who learn how to repent and find grace, forces us to ask, who are the people that we've written off? And to wonder, unfortunately, if we, like Jonah, have been sent to them to confront the evil, no doubt, but perhaps primarily to lead them to the joyful repentance that God offers to even the worst of sinners, even us, and even the ones who make our blood boil. The first time I taught on this chapter was at downtown church and I had gotten stoked about preaching about loving your enemies because it was in the abstract (laughs) Uh, and the night before was the uh, unite the right rally in Charlottesville where actual white supremacists with Nazi flags marched by torchlight in downtown Charlottesville and at which a young woman was murdered and then the next day I got up with all these illustrations of calling the Ninevites the neo-Nazis. And I thought, dead gummit, I, even them? Even that? And the story of Jonah says, yes. 
Wherever it is that we wonder, can that person be beyond the people? God says, no, I am the God who loves justice and righteousness. They're the foundation of my throne. And yet I long to bring all to repentance and grace and salvation and mercy and love. I'll end with an illustration. In 1961, the late congressperson John Lewis was deeply involved with the Martin Luther King wing of the civil rights movement. Uh, Lewis had been trained by uh, one of King's allies in Nashville while he was a seminary student. And he dropped out of seminary to get involved with the movement at the risk of his own life. And it was a very, a very Christian side of the movement, a side of the movement that emphasized that Jesus had loved his enemies without force, and so they would. And you, you may not know Lewis's story, but if I've, been, I've read a biography of him recently. I didn't realize he was not only imprisoned again, like probably dozens of times for his participation in this movement, but he was beaten again and again for his participation in this movement. And in 1961, he was brutally beaten by a group for trying to integrate some whites-only space or other, and he was, he was beaten unconscious. And it was surprised. He didn't really see the people who were involved uh, it was one of the more traumatic experiences of his life. Well, of course, he went on to become a, a long-term uh, representative, uh, congressperson. Well, in 2009, 48 years after that beating, a guy named Elwin Wilson met Congressman Lewis at his office. And he said to Congressman Lewis, I was there and I participated. And I was wrong. And I am sorry I'm sorry for my racism. I'm sorry for the way that I wounded you. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. And in that meeting, in Congressman Lewis's office, Congressman Lewis forgave him. He embraced him. And afterwards, to a watching world, so often dominated by unforgiveness, Lewis said that both the confession and the forgiveness testified to the power of love power of grace. Brothers and sisters, the truth of the gospel is that God confronts our injustice so dramatically because he wants to crack us open to receive his love and mercy and forgiveness. God takes us by the shoulders and tries to shake us out of our sin because he is the God who is love and longs to welcome us into his open arms. If you have not received that love this morning, if you have not stood beside the Ninevites and repented and called mightily on God, let me tell you this morning that the answer to your question, who knows, will he forgive, is yes, he will. And I invite you to experience that forgiveness this morning. If you have done that, if you do know the loving forgiveness of God, then empowered by that love, empowered by God's own spirit, I invite you, I invite us to let Jonah expose, expose us to the injustices inside that need to be repented of, the injustices outside that need to be confronted, and expose us to a God who loves to forgive the worst of sinners, even sinners like us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.